our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. If you've ever been to New York City, then you'll know there are certain cuisines that are considered quintessential dining. There's the giant slice of pizza, of course. Then there's the bagel and the New York hot dog. There's the chopped cheese you can find in practically any bodega throughout Upper Manhattan. Or the hot pretzel stands you can also find on any street corner. But long before any of these foods entered the New York food scene, there was that most humble of all the bivalves, the oyster. Blue Points, Rockaways, Cape Cod, Saddle Rocks, Buzzard Bays, Shrewsberries. The list goes on. Oysters on the half shell. Fried oysters. Oyster pudding. Oyster stew. Oysters pompadour. Oysters algonquin. Oysters a la Newburgh. Oysters on toast. Oysters fried with bacon. Oysters baked, stewed, pickled, fricasseed. There was a time when New Yorkers couldn't get enough of the aquatic delicacy. And it was the oysters that paid the price for it. Back in 1763, the first oyster restaurant opened up in a dingy basement on Broad Street. Pretty soon, similar oyster establishments began springing up all over Manhattan. These weren't your typical oysters, either. Long before Henry Hudson first sailed down the river that now bears his name, the Lenape people, who occupied the land, were plucking oysters big enough to fill both hands from the plentiful beds that became what we now know as New York Harbor. Archaeologists have discovered mounds of oyster shells called middens, many of which measure over 10 inches long. Some European travelers described cracking open shellfish that were more than a foot across. At one time, up until around the early 18th century, the lower Hudson estuary contained over 350 miles of oyster beds. Some biologists believe that New York Harbor once contained as much as half of the oysters in the entire world. So that means for a time, oysters were both plentiful and cheap. In some restaurants, you could gorge on all-you-can-eat oysters on the half-shell for six cents. By 1842, about six million dollars worth of oysters were being sold to restaurants, street vendors, and fishmongers across the city. But of course, all this overconsumption had an effect that anyone should have seen coming. If they'd only taken a moment to look away from their dinner plates, that is. By the early 19th century, the oyster beds of New York Harbor were nearly depleted. Oystermen who used to haul millions of pounds of the bivalves from the harbor began coming up empty. But even after overfishing and pollution had devastated what was once the richest oyster population in the world, people were still hungry for more. By the mid-19th century, New York City had a population of about 2.5 million people. And a great many of those people still wanted their oysters. 
But as a result, fleets of oyster sloops began being sent out to the Chesapeake to find more of the aquatic delicacies. During the second week of March, two men named Daniel Simmons and Edward Barnes chartered the single-masted sloop the Edwin A. Johnson to haul a cargo of oysters back from Virginia to New York City. George Hanford Burr was the ship's captain and co-owner. For the journey, Burr brought with him his two younger brothers, 24-year-old Oliver and 19-year-old Smith Watts. Burr needed a third man to serve as mate on this voyage. He found a ship's mate in the form of a rather large, imposing fellow by the name of William Johnson. This man Johnson was a big guy, broad-shouldered and heavily muscled. Exactly the sort of person you would need for the intense labor necessary for dealing with the heavy cargo of oysters they were going to pick up. The E.A. Johnson was 40 feet long with a mast made of white pine. The graceful vessel left the Spring Street dock in Lower Manhattan on March 15, 1860. She first stopped off in Tottenville, Staten Island to have some of her planking replaced and to get a good scrub down. By Sunday morning, March 18th, she arrived on her journey along the same bay, arriving in Gravesend, Brooklyn, that very same afternoon. It wouldn't be until the evening of March 20th before she finally set sail for Deep Creek, Virginia, to obtain the oysters. Before they set sail, Captain Burr wrote a letter to his beloved wife, Dedemina, in which he spoke highly of the new mate he had taken on shortly before the voyage. He was impressed with William Johnson's skills. He said the man was strong and intelligent, and he seemed like he was capable of handling any task thrown at him. He was particularly skilled as a ship's carpenter, and knew his way around a set of tools. Captain Burr affectionately signed off his letter to his wife by telling her how much he missed her, ending with, Your affectionate husband, ever. This was the last letter her husband George would ever write to her. At about 6.30 in the morning on Wednesday, March 21st, the captain of the schooner The Telegraph out of New London, Connecticut spotted a peculiar sight along the lower end of New York Harbor, between Coney Island Point and Sandy Hook. It was the E.A. Johnson, and clearly something was amiss. The sloop was drifting aimlessly with its sails collapsed and draped loosely over the deck. The ship's bowsprit, the long spar that juts out of the vessel's prow, was broken off and the rigging that should have been attached to it was now dragging in the water. Captain Lestaire maneuvered his schooner up alongside what appeared to be a deserted ship. From the moment he stepped foot on the E.A. Johnson's deck, he could see that something horrible had happened here. There were huge smears of blood everywhere he looked across the ship's planks. And in those puddles of blood, he could see chunks of flesh, clumps of hair, and bits of gleaming white bone. The captain was scared to death of what else he might find. Despite his mounting sense of dread, he steeled himself enough to descend down the companionway. There, he was met by even more signs of carnage. The entire cabin was in shambles. The furniture was shattered and tossed about. Everywhere he looked, there was more blood. It painted the walls and covered the floors. Vast gouts of red spray everywhere he could see. And yet, there were no bodies anywhere to be found. A coffee pot covered with blood and human hair lay in a corner near the stove. A broom was later discovered by the authorities that had apparently been used by the assailant in an attempt to make a half-hearted attempt to sweep up the mess. A hammer coated in blood was found near the companionway. More blood was found on the ladder leading up to the deck. Along the cabin's beams and ceiling, there were several gouges in the wood that were probably made with either a knife or a sharp hatchet. The runs were filled with even more clotted blood as it seeped down through the floorboards. All the lockers and drawers were stained red. 
This most likely occurred after the assailant had gone rooting through them looking for valuables after finishing off what appeared to be a mass murder. Perhaps the most gruesome evidence of what occurred would be found when the bloody trail was followed to a spot along the deck rail, where a set of bloody fingerprints were found on the rail along with the indentation of a knife. Taking these two clues together, it could only be presumed that the murderer had severed the hand of one of his victims as the man desperately clung to the rail, as the killer attempted to throw him overboard. Thus began the story of one of the most horrific murders you likely never heard of, which would then lead to one of the most bizarre trials in New York history. I'm Nate Hale, steering this podcast toward the second star to the right, and straight on till morning, and this is The Conspirators. One of my favorite TV shows of all time has to be The Twilight Zone. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend you check it out. I grew up watching reruns of the show, and it is one of those places where I first acquired my love for all things strange and mysterious. There is one episode in particular that always struck me, though, and not for the usual reasons. It's about a man who works inside a wax museum that's closing down after the museum falls on hard times. The museum worker doesn't want to give up his favorite exhibit, though. This would be The Murderer's Row, which features a who's who of some of the most infamous murderers in history. So instead, the guy takes the wax figures home where they proceed to come alive and the worker decides to use them to murder his wife and anyone else he sees standing in his way. As far as Twilight Zones go, it's a fairly middle-of-the-road episode with a twist that seems fairly obvious. I won't spoil it, though, in case you want to check it out for yourself. But one thing that struck me when I was a kid was... Although even by then I was already familiar with most of the names of the legendary murderers depicted in Wax, Jack the Ripper, Henry Landrew, William Burke, and Edmund Hare, there was still one name among them I didn't recognize, and that was a man named Albert W. Hicks. Which is surprising because back in his day, Albert Hicks was every bit as well known as Jack the Ripper. He was a cold-blooded murderer, a gangster, as well as being the last person convicted and executed for piracy in America. Evidence of the apparent mass murder on the sloop the E.A. Johnson quickly became big news. Before the end of the day, late editions of most of the city papers had printed headlines about the bloody murder that had occurred on board the ghost ship. Newspaper reporters had a field day speculating about what might have occurred on the boat. One declared that a foul and wholesale slaughter had taken place. Others speculated that the sloop must have been raided by pirates. Still others said that the murderer must have been one of the crew. In either scenario, though, robbery was the presumed motive for the apparent massacre. It's believed that Captain George Burr would have had a large amount of silver in his possession, including the $300 that had been paid to him for chartering the vessel. One newspaper article claimed that Burr was unusually trusting and would often leave his silver laying out on his bunk where anyone could see how much he had. Once news broke about the murders, one mystery was quickly solved. That was when the ship's captain of the schooner, the John B. Mather, came forward and admitted that he knew how the E.A. Johnson had come to be so badly damaged. Captain Nickerson told police that sometime in the early morning hours of Wednesday, March 21st, he'd been sailing his schooner out of New York Harbor when the E.A. Johnson collided with him. As far as Captain Nickerson could tell, there was no one on board the vessel other than the man behind the wheel. 
Nickerson told police that in all his 25 years on the water, he had never seen a more reckless person at the helm of a ship. Police investigators quickly noticed that the yawl, a small sailboat that should have been hanging off the stern, was missing. Everyone presumed that the killer had taken the tiny boat to make his escape. On Thursday afternoon, a local boy led police to the yawl, which was found laying abandoned in some reeds near Fort Tompkins on Staten Island. Fort's caretaker was able to provide police with a detailed description of the man he had seen rowing the boat to shore. He was tall and powerfully built, with a wide jaw and short whiskers. He was wearing a gray jacket and matching pantaloons with patches on the knees. Atop his head, he wore a high-crowned Kossuth hat. After dragging the small boat on shore, the man slung the bag over his shoulder and headed off in the direction of Vanderbilt Landing. This was a place where a person could catch a steamboat that made regular trips to and from Manhattan. From there, police were able to locate a number of eyewitnesses who had encountered the man throughout the day. This man arrived at the landing a few minutes too late to catch the 6 a.m. ferry. He was informed by the dockkeeper that the next steamboat wouldn't arrive for several more hours. The man asked the dockkeeper if there was somewhere close by where he could get something to drink and eat. The dockkeeper led him to a nearby oyster saloon. There, the man ordered a plate of eggs and some oyster stew, which he washed down with two hot mugs of gin. The stranger told the dockkeeper a horrific tale. He said he was the captain of a sloop named the William Tell, and that in the wee hours of the morning his boat had gotten into a terrible accident. He told him his sloop had been run into by a wayward schooner. During this collision, one of the stranger's crewmen had been crushed to death with his entrails spilling out over the sloop's deck. His other mate fell overboard and presumably drowned. The stranger said that he had only been fortunate enough to survive the crash simply because he had been below deck sleeping. The crash jolted the man awake from his slumber. He then rushed to the deck and was shocked to see all the blood that had been spilled. He grabbed the wheel and tried to steer the ship to safety, but the ship was sinking fast. So he gathered up as many valuables as he could and managed to escape by rowing away in the ship's yawl. The stranger then shocked the waiter by pulling a $10 gold piece from his money bag in order to pay for his 10-cent meal. The waiter told him he couldn't possibly make change for such a large coin. That $10 gold piece would be the equivalent of about $300 in today's money. So the man took the gold coin back and offered a silver quarter dollar, telling the waiter he would take a cigar instead of needing any change. A short while later, the stranger boarded the Staten Island ferryboat. While on board, he chatted with a deckhand, and he told him a nearly identical version of the tale he had told the dockkeeper. He even opened his bag and showed him that it was full of coins. He got off the ferry and stopped for pie and coffee at a refreshment stand along the ferry landing. He was friendly and cordial when he struck up a conversation with the proprietor, Charlie McCoston. But when it came time to pay, the stranger once again tried to hand the proprietor a $10 gold piece. McCoston frustratedly asked him if he had anything smaller. Finally, the man paid with a quarter. After leaving the ferry landing, the stranger headed to South Street, where he met a broker named Albert S. James. He asked the man to exchange a bag containing $170 in gold and silver coins for small denomination paper bills. From there, the man made his way to a seedy lodging house on Cedar Street in Lower Manhattan, where he arrived in the company of a woman and an infant child. By that point, though, the tenement's proprietor, Patrick Burke, was well aware of the news about the Bloody Oyster Sloop murders which had been all over the day's newspapers. He knew the police were involved in a manhunt for a deranged killer. Something about this stranger rubbed him the wrong way. 
He also knew that the man was in possession of a large wad of cash. He told Burke that he'd received a large reward for rescuing a sloop in the bay. Burke thought this was odd since he had not heard any news of this event. But he had heard of the apparent robbery and murders that occurred upon the oyster sloop, the E.A. Johnson. So not long after, Burke went to his local police precinct where he told them he suspected his tenant, a man calling himself William Johnson, might be the man they were looking for. By that point, though, it was too late for police. Johnson had already paid up his bill and left, claiming that he had to leave for Providence in a hurry for a family emergency. Commander Weed of the New York Police became certain Johnson was his murderer. He sent a detective named George Nivens along with an officer named Smith to Providence to track the man down. But at first, Providence turned out to be a dead end. There were no witnesses who could corroborate seeing a man fitting William Johnson's description on the train to Providence. Nivens quickly enlisted the aid of local police to search the city for William Johnson or the woman and child he was seen with. It occurred to Smith that perhaps the suspects had traveled to Providence by a different route, catching the steamboat the Bradford Durfee out of Fall River. At the boat's dock, they met a deckhand named John McDermott who confirmed seeing a man fitting Johnson's description, along with a woman and a young child after taking the ferry from Fall River. During the short voyage, McDermott had overheard the man asking other passengers if any of them knew of a quiet boarding house where he might be able to stay. After getting off the ferry, McDermott saw the trio get into a hack and head off to parts unknown. Although McDermott was unable to give the exact name or number of the hack, he was still able to provide such a detailed description of the driver and the horses that the police officers were able to quickly track him down. Within 30 minutes, Detective Nivens and a Providence detective named George Billings were knocking on the front door of the hackman's house. The driver, whose name was Reuben Wyman, told them he had dropped his passengers off at the home of a woman named Mrs. Crowell, who ran a boarding house in the southeastern part of the city, in a neighborhood that was considered well off the beaten path. The detectives asked Wyman to accompany them to Mrs. Crowell's home to identify the man he had dropped off. At about 7 p.m., Nivens, Smith, Billings, and Wyman arrived at Mrs. Crowell's house. Nivens proposed a plan in which Wyman would knock on the front door while the officers concealed themselves around the corner. Wyman went to the door and knocked. Soon after, a petite young woman answered the door. She was the woman Wyman had identified as Johnson's wife. Wyman told her that two of the three 25-cent pieces he had received from her husband had turned out to be counterfeit, and he demanded to speak with him. The woman told Wyman her husband wasn't there, but he'd be back soon. She immediately shut the door in Wyman's face. Billings suggested the men return to the police station for reinforcements. They enlisted the aid of several more officers who staked out the boarding house. This time, Nivens went up to the front door at about 2 in the morning and began pounding on the door. He did this several more times before an upstairs window opened and a woman's voice called down asking who was there. Nivens identified himself and asked to speak to Mrs. Crowell. The woman soon came down to speak to Nivens. He told her that he'd arrested a hackman who attempted to pass several counterfeit coins that he had received from Mrs. Crowell's tenant, William Johnson. She directed the police to her tenant's room on the first floor. The officers went inside without knocking, where they found the man calling himself William Johnson sleeping next to his wife. They woke the man up who didn't seem the least bit startled by the police's presence. The man politely asked them what this was all about as he got dressed. Police searched the man's room and found a silver pocket watch and $120 in small bills. By that point, the man's wife was crying so fiercely that Nivens felt moved to give her $10 of the cash they were confiscating. They took the man quietly to the police station and locked him in a cell. 
He asked for his pipe and permission to smoke. Nivens told him they would question him further in the morning. But before they parted, the man lit his pipe and told him one more thing. He said that he should probably admit that William Johnson wasn't his real name. He told Nivens that Johnson was just the name he used sometimes when he went to sea. His real name, he said, was Albert W. Hicks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We don't know a lot about Hicks's background. Records were spotty back then, and much of what we know came from Hicks himself, and has since been altered in many subsequent retellings of his life story. Hicks was likely born in either 1820 or perhaps as late as 1828. His father was a collier and a farmer from Rhode Island. Hicks came from a large family, although some accounts say he had six brothers, while others say he had as many as 11 siblings. I only bring these discrepancies up as a way of saying that as we try to pin down just how Albert Hicks became the vicious monster he grew into, it can be difficult sometimes to determine just how much of what has been written about him we should believe. It is believed that he ran away to Norwich, Connecticut when he was 15. Prior to leaving his family, Hicks already had a violent reputation. He was prone to fighting and known for his nasty temper. Shortly after he made his way to Connecticut, he was arrested for theft. He was sentenced to jail but managed to escape and elude the police multiple times. But on most occasions, he was eventually caught and arrested all over again. Once he was held in solitary confinement for an entire year. Historian Rich Cohen believes one of the reasons Hicks was so intent on escaping jail was because he may have been sexually abused by some of the other prisoners. Over the next 20 years or so, Hicks built quite a reputation for himself as a highway robber, a gangster, and a pirate. He bounced around from criminal enterprise to criminal enterprise. Late one night, sometime in the 1840s, he snuck into the home of an acquaintance, an elderly bachelor named Jonathan Crossman, where he proceeded to beat the man to death with a club. He then stole several hundred dollars from his victim and headed off to Providence. Here, he lavished a great deal of gold jewelry on his girlfriend at the time. But Hicks's spending spree caught the attention of the local authorities, and he was soon arrested, tried, and convicted of murder and robbery. He was sentenced to be hanged, but he managed to escape during a riot and vanished once again. One account you'll find of Hicks is Herbert Asbury's classic book, Gangs of New York, which describes him as a vicious gangster and thief. Based on other later works written about him, some of what Asbury writes about Hicks appears to be inaccurate, but close enough that we can all agree that Albert W. Hicks was not someone to be trifled with. At some point throughout his criminal career, Hicks took to the high seas. He claimed that he and several companions took to roaming the waters from the Marquesas to Cape St. Lucia, robbing and butchering natives, causing mutinies, and by all accounts living a life of piracy. 
Hicks had a lot of wild claims about his exploits, though. He said that at one point he made his way to the California gold fields, where the once pirate became a desperado, robbing and murdering his way through the saloons and gambling dens of the Old West. In 1857, he made his way to New York City, where he got married and fathered a child. Although his new domestic situation didn't seem to dissuade him from his life of crime, he lived in the infamous Five Points District of Lower Manhattan, where he began hanging out with a number of the vicious Bowery gangs that terrorized the neighborhood. These were gangs that went by names like the Daybreak Boys and the Dead Rabbits. By Hicks's own words, he became the worst man who ever lived. On Sunday, March 25, 1860, Hicks was woken from his slumber inside his cell and told by police that he had been arrested for the murder of Captain George Burr and his crew of the E.A. Johnson. Hicks denied knowing anything about the sloop or the murders. In fact, he insisted he had never been on an oyster boat in his life. Nivens was taken aback at Hicks's demeanor. The man was so cool and collected for a while he began to wonder whether he had in fact arrested the right man. Nivens took Hicks by train back to New York City. By now, news had broken that the police had arrested the oyster sloop murderer. At every stop they made, they were swarmed by reporters clamoring for an exclusive. And through it all, Hicks remained calm, collected, and even appeared a bit amused. Once he was back in New York City, detectives couldn't shake him one bit. They spent hours interrogating him, but Hicks would admit to knowing nothing of the crimes and didn't seem bothered by their questioning at all. But despite Hicks's admonitions that he had nothing to do with the slaughter of Captain Burr and his crew, the evidence against him quickly mounted. A parade of witnesses were brought before him, each attesting that Hicks was indeed the man they had seen in the hours following the murders. One man, Simon J. Conover, who owned a jewelry shop in the Bowery, identified Hicks's silver pocket watch as one belonging to Captain Burr, since he had serviced and cleaned the timepiece many times over. Daniel Simmons was one of the men who chartered the Oyster Sloop, and he identified Hicks as the man Captain Burr hired as a ship's mate. As did Sela Cowell, the man who built the E.A. Johnson. Throughout all these damning witnesses who were brought before him, Hicks remained unflappable, declaring each time that the witnesses were mistaken. They even brought Hicks's own wife and child to the jail to plead with him to admit his guilt. But Hicks refused to budge, telling his crying wife that this was all a misunderstanding and it would all blow over in a couple days. But it didn't. At one point, they tried bringing in Coroner John Shermer, who said he had just come from an inquest on George Burr's body, which they had recently recovered. This was a bald-faced lie in the hope that it would shake Hicks enough for him to slip up and admit what he did. But Hicks remained unfazed, simply saying, Is that so? Although police searched both the waters and surrounding coastlines for the bodies of Captain Burr and his crewmates, they never found them. The most police were able to recover were Captain Burr's black cap and another hat belonging to one of the crew. They also found a canvas money bag from the Mercantile Bank of New York stained with bloody fingerprints. The fact that no bodies were ever recovered presented a legal dilemma for the New York City police. There was some concern that without the bodies, a jury would have a difficult time convicting Hicks. A New York Times editorial wrote that as a general rule of law, no person should be convicted in the absence of a body. In point of fact, there have been numerous occasions throughout history where accused murderers have been convicted without a body. But in the case of Albert W. Hicks, Assistant U.S. District Attorney James F. Dwight wasn't taking any chances. Instead of prosecuting Hicks for murder, he was instead tried under the third section of Chapter 113 of the U.S. Statutes at Large for robbery committed upon the high seas. Or in other words, Albert W. Hicks was tried for piracy. This was a crime that still carried with it a sentence punishable by death. 
Hicks the pirate, as he quickly came to be known, became something of a celebrity of his day. Among the throngs of reporters and curiosity seekers who showed up hoping to get a look at Hicks, there was one visitor of particular note. This was America's most famous showman, P.T. Barnum. I've talked about Barnum in a much earlier episode, but in short, he was the quintessential showman of his era. He got his start by purchasing a blind elderly slave named Joyce Heth and putting her on display claiming she was the 161-year-old former nursemaid of George Washington. From there, Barnum built his career as a traveling showman, building up a huge collection of oddities and curiosities, both human and otherwise. In 1841, he acquired a rundown natural history museum in New York City that he transformed into his Museum of Wonders. This contained everything from the skeleton of the legendary Fiji mermaid to a live 30-foot anaconda, the country's largest aquarium, and a sewing machine operated by a dog. He also had an extensive wax figure collection modeled after the famous Tussauds Wax Museum in London. Madame Tussauds Wax Museum's biggest draw was its chamber of horrors depicting some of the most infamous murders and murderers in history. Barnum copied this idea and created his own chamber of horrors. One of Barnum's wax displays was that of a snaggletoothed 80-year-old hag named Polly Bodine, who was an infamous accused axe murderer of her day. The fact that Bodine was only 33 years old and was eventually acquitted of the crime didn't matter one bit to Barnum. Bodine threatened to sue Barnum for slander after her acquittal, but never actually followed through on her threat. When Barnum showed up on March 28th to meet Hicks, he brought with him several artisans who were all set to begin making plaster casts of Hicks's head for a bust he planned on putting on display inside his museum. Hicks was tickled at the proposal and agreed to let the men wrap his head in plaster and make the molds. Later on, when a reporter showed up asking Hicks for an interview, he blew the man off, telling him he could go talk to his bust over at Mr. Barnum's museum. Hicks's trial began on Monday, May 14, 1860. The evidence against him was overwhelming, and it only took the jury about seven minutes of deliberation to find him guilty. He was sentenced to hang, and the execution was to be carried out in full view of the public on Friday, July 13, 1860 on Bedloe's Island, now known as Liberty Island, the location of the Statue of Liberty. It was only after Hicks was convicted that he finally began opening up and admitting to murdering George Byrd and his two crewmen. Although Hicks often played coy and at one point even claimed that the devil possessed him and guided his hand as he proceeded to bludgeon the men to death. Hicks would eventually spill enough details that his life story and account of the murders would be published as a highly questionable book that was released on the day of his execution. Hicks's published confession seems wildly over the top and details nearly 100 murders that he claims to have committed throughout his life. Most modern historians dispute this number as highly exaggerated, but Rich Cohen, who wrote an excellent book on Hicks's life titled The Last Pirate of New York, claims that we can't fully discount at least some of the many murders recounted in Hicks's confession. In any case, Hicks gave a much more detailed account of the murders on board the E.A. Johnson. He said that he got word that the ship was departing soon, loaded down with cash, and he figured it would be easy prey. He got himself hired on by Captain Burr, and he waited until they were far from shore before he struck. He said the late one night he snuck up behind Oliver Watts, the younger of the two brothers, with an axe held behind his back. Watts was on nighttime lookout, and when Hicks approached him, he distracted him by pointing to what he said was a lighthouse in the distance. When Watts turned to look where Hicks was pointing, he brought the axe down on the young man's skull. Oliver's older brother Smith heard the heavy thud of the body on the deck and came rushing up top to see what had happened. As soon as he reached the deck, Hicks pounced on him, plunging the axe into his neck. Hicks later said that it was a bit like chopping a small tree. 
He chopped the man's head off. Then the headless body actually stumbled around for a couple steps before it toppled over the two. From there, Hicks said he rushed down below deck and went to work in Captain Burr, who at the time was resting in his bunk. Burr managed to get up and knock Hicks to the floor, but Hicks was bigger and stronger than the man, and he was quickly able to get back to his feet and bring the axe down in the middle of Captain Burr's skull. By the time he had made sure Burr was good and dead, Hicks made his way back up to the deck exhausted, although he was shocked to see that Oliver Watts was somehow still alive and managing to stagger to his feet. Hicks rushed at Watts and bludgeoned him with the blunt side of the axe. He dragged him over to the ship's rail and attempted to shove him over into the water. But the boy held fast onto the rail, forcing Hicks to chop the boy's hand off at the wrist, sending his body toppling into the water below. Hicks said with his work finally done, he went below deck, drank two tankards of ale, then went about the business of disposing of the other two bodies. Hicks's execution turned into every big an event as New York's 4th of July gala that was just a couple of weeks earlier. The only thing missing were the fireworks. A gallows was erected on Bedloe's Island, which was public enough of a space that it gave the thousands of spectators room to swarm around. A week before the execution, ads began running in newspapers offering holiday excursions to see Albert Hicks hang. Tickets were sold for a dollar apiece, giving people a comfortable ride in a steamboat during which refreshments would be served. It's estimated that more than 10,000 people showed up by all manner of boats and pleasure craft to witness Hicks's hanging. One famous individual who showed up to witness the hanging was Margaret Fox, one of the Fox sisters who had risen to fame for allegedly being able to talk to ghosts. It was the Fox sisters who had actually sparked the spiritualism movement throughout New England in the latter half of the 19th century. Margaret Fox came to see the execution claiming that Afterwards, she hoped to be able to make contact with Hicks's spirit in the afterlife. Boats lined up side by side, packed in so close together you could no longer see the water below them. Hicks woke that morning seemingly undisturbed by what was about to occur. He wolfed down a last meal of bacon, eggs, and tea before dressing himself in a specially tailored suit that had been made just for this occasion. This included an ornate blue coat with gilt buttons and needlework anchors, blue pants, a white shirt, and a pair of light pumps. It was an outfit tailor-made for what everyone imagined a pirate looked like. By that point in time, the threadbare brown suit Hicks had been arrested in was now in the possession of P.T. Barnum. The showman paid Hicks $25 in cash and two boxes of fine Havana cigars for his clothes. When the time came, Hicks was led from his jail cell to a waiting carriage. From there, he was taken to the harbor and loaded onto a chartered steamboat that took him to Bedloe's Island. There on the island, Hicks was marched to the scaffold, which was surrounded by a squad of marines hired to hold back the eager crowd. Albert W. Hicks looked perfectly calm and indifferent as the noose was draped around his neck. Just before they pulled the black cap over his face, the marshal asked if he had any last words. Hicks only shook his head and said, Hang me quick. Make haste. The marshal granted his wish. At 11.15, he raised a white handkerchief and signaled to the hangman to cut the rope. With the swing of a hatchet, the hangman chopped the rope in half. This released a series of weights that jerked Hicks into the air. For the first three minutes, Hicks struggled against the hangman's noose. Then his body went limp. At 11.26, Albert Hicks's body was lowered to the ground and he was immediately declared dead. Although P.T. Barnum was not in attendance that day, he was still ready to profit off the execution. Within days of the hanging, Barnum's American Museum unveiled its latest attraction, 
a life-size wax figure of Albert W. Hicks attired in what was claimed to be the very clothes he wore to commit his gruesome murders. The wax figure of Albert Hicks instantly became one of the museum's biggest attractions. Someone who lost out on profiting from Hicks that day was Margaret Fox. Although she attempted to receive a message from Hicks in the Great Beyond, no such message ever came to her. But maybe that's for a reason. You see, this wasn't the last anyone heard of Albert Hicks, though. Just a few weeks later, on August 25, 1860, the New York Leader ran a shocking front-page headline, Albert W. Hicks Alive, it said. This same article would be reprinted in several newspapers across the United States, and even in the prestigious medical journal, The Lancet. The article claimed that Hicks had actually been cut down from the gallows seconds before his death. Then, with the aid of a paid accomplice masquerading as a deputy marshal, his body was held in a state of suspended animation as he was spirited away wrapped in some warm blankets to the home of Dr. Henry D. O'Reilly. Then Dr. O'Reilly worked with a colleague named Crane to bring Albert Hicks back from the brink of death. They did this by lowering his body into a special electrochemical bath devised by a French scientist. Over the course of the next two hours, a series of electrical charges were used to perform a sort of Frankenstein ritual in order to resurrect Albert W. Hicks. After Hicks was back among the living, he was still too weak and unable to speak, so he was taken to recuperate with his sister in Poughkeepsie. Of course, immediately after the publication of this article, many other New York newspapers published articles claiming that the idea of Albert Hicks coming back from the dead was preposterous. But the leader insisted that every word of their story was true. All you had to do was take a short trip to Poughkeepsie, and you could see Albert W. Hicks walking around the streets for yourself. The only problem was you wouldn't be able to speak with him because the hangman's noose had rendered Hicks unable to talk. Of course, the article wasn't the least bit true. Throughout the 1800s, a number of newspapers across the country had gotten into the habit of publishing stories that played fast and loose with the truth in order to sell newspapers. Despite the New York leader's insistence that their story was true, I think we can all agree that it was a complete fabrication. Or as P.T. Barnum would have called it, a humbug. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in reading more about Albert Hicks, then I highly recommend both books, The Last Pirate of New York by Rich Cohen, as well as The Pirate by Harold Schechter, both of which provided most of the research for this episode, and they're both really great reads. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Jody and Eric for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. Thank you to all my other supporters as well, as well as thanks to you, my faithful listeners. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which just went up. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. I also encourage you to follow me along on our brand new TikTok account, where I've been posting all sorts of fun, short-form videos about the same sort of topics you'll hear me talk about here. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple, and pretty much everywhere else across the podcasting multiverse. Besides that, we have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and whatever the heck Twitter is anymore. Follow us along in any of those places, or even feel free to send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and let us know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, 
and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.